Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This Journal Club session was held on March 30th, 2022. Good afternoon, everyone. We are going to go ahead and get started with our Journal Club. Um, and today we want to talk, I'm Dr. Diane Sanders Cepeda, and um, we want to talk about meeting the current clinical challenges in post-acute long-term care. It's going to be an interesting session. We are, I want to do much more um, listening and talking with um, some of our state leaders than actually presenting. And who we have on our list today, um, you may have already heard Kim Smoke is here, and she's like amazing always. Um, and then at the bottom of the hour, we're going to be joined by um, Dr. Kenneth um, Shepke. So a lot of things that we need to talk about and unpack. Um, I want to start first you know, just looking at um, where we are at, and I'm going to go to this slide first. So looking at where we're at as far as what we're going to address today, a lot of heavy lifting, because if you recall at the end of February, I think it was the end of February, there was um, a State of the Union addressed by um, President Biden. And for the first time ever, um, I don't know if it's true for the first time ever, but for the first time I've ever heard, nursing homes were mentioned. So we want to really look at some of those policies and then think about what we need to do to become prepared um, um, for an endemic standard, an endemic um, way of um, life as we look at how we are moving with COVID and living with COVID. I will say that if we are looking at where what is happening now, you know, there's a there's a lot of positive um, news um, uh, as of um, March 25th in the state of Florida, our positivity rate was only 2.3%, which is amazing. Um, this um, graphic is from today, and uh, this shows that the United States is at a 3.73% um, moving seven-day average for positivity rate, and that's um, really good news. I know we're hearing a lot about the new variant um, that it has been in the news, uh, um, the BA2.2, which is an Omicron variant, so a variant of a variant. And we are seeing that in certain pockets throughout the country, um, a lot of that in, in other um, countries as well. But within our country, there, there are things that are happening with us looking at the wastewater um, surveillance, try to predict where and, and really look at where we're gonna see those outbreaks. So we're, we're nowhere where we were, I guess, in the summer of last year, and we're even better than what we were um, a few months ago, and I think that every time we learn, the the interesting thing is that on yesterday we did see that there was uh, a second um, booster that was authorized by the FDA, and this is really targeting those individuals who are 50 or older or who are immunocompromised. So, you know, there, I think as we are looking at what's happening and everything that settles. I feel comfortable saying that we need to learn how to live with this. Um, this is something that is um, that will enter into a pandemic where we're going to still see these hyperlocal events that we've been seeing all throughout the pandemic. It will um, continue to impact our facilities, and we need to prepare ourselves and our infrastructure um, to to really deal with that. What was interesting, though, and to the comments I made earlier, is that we saw. What we what for for like I said the, my first time um, in listening to a State of the Union nursing homes being mentioned. Now, anyone who knows anyone who's ever tuned in, anyone's ever seen a, a, a presentation, you know how I feel about politics is like the least favorite thing. I I don't ever want to talk about it. I love strategic planning and I love policy 
And I love making action plans and contingency plans. And I could do that all day because I am a medical director. <laughs> but the politics of it all, you know, I, I don't like. But it was interesting hearing about these priorities. And I put up the five key priorities. Uh, the, the first one is um, ensuring taxpayer dollars support nursing homes that provide safe, adequate, and dignified care. And the components of that really are around establishing a minimum, a minimum nursing home staffing requirement, reducing um, resident room crowding, strengthening the um, skilled nursing facility uh, value-based purchase program, and reinforcing safeguards against unnecessary medications and treatments. Um, the next was around enhancing accountability and oversight. And this is um, something that we really, as as leaders in post-acute long-term care need to really think about. Uh, there was statements around beefing up um, scrutiny on more of the poorest performing um, nursing facilities and adequately funding um, inspection activities and expanding financial penalties and other enforcement sanctions. Um, there was uh, comments around increasing transparency, which is creating a database for nursing home owners and operators. And then we also saw um, statements around creating pathways to good paying jobs with free and fair choice to join a union, um, ensuring our nursing aides training is affordable, launching national nursing career pathways, and then ensuring pandemic and emergency preparedness in nursing homes was the, the really the, the fifth key priority. And that involved um, um, looking at how do we strengthen the requirements for on-site infection provisionists, enhancing requirements for pandemic and emergency preparedness and, and those things. And so when you hear it, I think in the speech, certain things sounded really positive, but we really had to look into the details and understand this. And the first um, statement that we saw um, really um, come through was from ACA and um, um, NCAL, the National um, um, Organization for Assisted Living. And it was interesting, and I, I'll, I'll just point this out, that assisted living wasn't highlighted, and that is something that I think everyone who works in the post-acute long-term care continuum needs to think about as well. Um, we, we have to be very careful when, when we're hearing that more scrutiny, regulations, and fines are coming our way. And I think both um, ACA and CAL and AMDA, both um, in their responses, to, all three of their responses to this um, really stated the same thing that while we appreciate certain aspects of these policies, you know, what does this mean for our facilities and how do we really move forward? And that is what I wanna to talk to Kim Smoke about. So Kim, I don't know if you are hey. ready to come <laughs> off mute, but. <laughs> I want to really, and I'm going to um, want to really maybe get your perspective and just have you say a couple of things first so that we can hear what you thought about some of those policy changes and addressing those staffing challenges. Well, I, I mean, I will say, and and I know that, you know, uh, and I mentioned this at, at Phenomenal last week when, when I was speaking, you know, I, I agree, you know, I think that, you know, kind of back up a little bit, I think that we all knew, although maybe not at this level, I think we all knew that prior to the pandemic, we were coming up on a staffing crisis um, in, our, in our healthcare industry alone, you know, globally. Um, I think that the pandemic, I think we all have seen that the pandemic has just, um, you know, kind of lit it on fire, so to speak. Um, so now we're we're having to to deal with you know the 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 staffing challenges that are out there. But but just to, so that everybody understands the staffing challenges um, that we are facing in our healthcare industry, um, you know, in hospitals and nursing homes and assisted living facilities and in anything that is that in which care is being provided. We also at state survey agencies, and I'm not just not speaking about Florida, but I mean nationwide, because I know a lot of you have nationwide companies, a lot of you uh, medical directors are, you know, a part of national organizations, so you may be hearing it too. You know, we are also as state survey agencies, those of, you know, that are regulators that are coming into these facilities that are charged with making sure um, facilities are following the 
regulatory requirements in order to continue to operate. Um, we are also, you know, experiencing our own staffing um, challenges as well. Um, so we're, we're kind of, this is one of those things, you know, I always talk a lot about, you know, we really are in this together and we really, we really are. This is one of those that we can truly say we are all working on this together and that, you know, it really impacts both sides, essentially, although we're big, one big old team, uh, maybe have, you know, disagreements uh, as far as how things are implemented. Um, but, but we are also facing the same things many, many providers are, you know, with, with staffing um, challenges. So I do know, um, you know, many of you may be aware, and, you know, Florida Healthcare Association, who I believe we have some representation on from today, um, Kristen Knapp, I'll call Kristen Knapp out and Debbie Franklin. You know, they worked together and actually presented, I believe, last week on the Florida Healthcare Association, the workforce grant that was approved. And, you know, I'm not going to steal any, any thunder away from them. Um, it is something that they are working on um, as well. And so um, have shared, um, you know, what they've been doing um, since this grant was approved. And that's one of the reasons why I provided information to Fadana. And I know that. Ian and the Florida Medical Directors are also have a grant approved as well. The civil monetary penalties, and what I'm talking about, folks who may not know, we do, you know, for civil monetary penalties that are imposed against nursing homes, um, you nursing homes have to pay that fine within a certain period of time. All that goes to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. A portion of that, so the Medicaid portion of that, come back comes back to us, to the state of Florida, and this is for any state. So that is the funds that we have available to approve projects and projects that improve quality of care, quality of life in our nursing home that do studies like this on, on staffing strategies. And, and, you know, I know Ian and, and, and their and also organization has, them, has one of our grants um, approved as well. I don't have them all of them in my head, but, you know, we, the grants cannot be used for, um, you know, capital improvement. So, we can't, we cannot approve a grant to paint your nursing home. Um, we can't do that, <laughs> but wouldn't that be nice if we could, but we can't do that. But, you know, those are really um, some, some neat initiatives that we do have. And one of them, like I said, is um, it's over a million dollar, you know, grant that we have that was approved. Uh, and I know that um, Florida Healthcare Association has been working on that grant since I would say Last year, October, November is when they started on that and making great strides because they are required to report to us quarterly on the kind of deliverables on their status of that project. So again, I know last week at Fadana that um, Kristen Knapp and Debbie Franklin actually provided an overview of that. And Ian, what I will do is um, send you a link to our webpage for our civil monetary grants. Um, so other folks that you know, want to maybe look at some of these grants, some some ways to, um, you know, put some things in place to improve quality of care and quality of life, you know, in your nursing homes. It's This is only available for, for nursing homes. I just want to make sure everybody understands that. Um, but that that is something that Ian, I can give you that link to our website and you can send that out to to the group as well. Make sure everybody has a has a copy of that. So thank you, Kim. Absolutely. So that's just, you know, something about um, those. And, you know, I, I do want to say, you know, like you, um, Dr. Cepeda, you know, it, I did listen to um, the president's address um, as my role as the president of our association, the Association for Health Facility Survey Agency Directors. Um, I got a little heads up that that was coming. Um, so we I think that we as state survey agency directors and you as providers are, are you know, waiting just like we are, the only thing I got was a heads up that was coming out, um, but I have not received any more information on, you know, the status of that. I think one of the things that folks want to know in Florida, because we have, you know, House Bill 1239 that passed that, um, you know, impacts staffing in nursing homes, but we also have CMS, you know, that is, you know, changing how they um, they're changing the regulatory requirement for staffing in nursing homes. You know, for years it's been, you know, you got to have sufficient numbers to meet the patient need, to meet the resident needs. So now CMS is, is going to be, you know, doing a, um, from my understanding, they do have some data, but going to be looking, you know, at some data, maybe doing another quick study 
to see how they will break that down as far as, you know, hours per day per patient. So we'll, I think we all are kind of waiting to see how they do that. I imagine that may be one of the first one of their initiatives that they roll out for implementation. Um, the other couple of initiatives, as you mentioned, um, may take a little while for implementation, but, but I think that one about, you know, every nursing home provide that sufficient number of staff who are adequately trained to provide the care and services, I think that may be one of the first ones. But as soon as I hear information, I definitely will share that. Because again, as I keep saying, you know, we are all in this together. And, and the more information we have and can work together collaboratively, I mean, we, we want to make sure our residents in our nursing homes and nationwide, you know, that that quality of care is improved um, and that services are being provided according to their individualized plan of care. So thank you for allowing me to be here today. And I do want to say thank you to your group, Dr. Safita, for opening up the, the door and, and welcoming, in, welcoming in also Dr. Shepke with Department of Health. Our collaboration with our sister agency through this public health emergency has been so critical. And, you know, we take our direction. They are the public health agency. We take our direction from Department of Health and have worked very closely with Department of Health, the Healthcare Associated Infection Team. And I know as I tell um, all of our staff um, and all of our folks at staff in nursing homes that when Department of Health comes in, the HAI team, they are there to help you. You know, I know when ACA comes in, we we're not coming in to help you, right? I mean, we, we can help a little bit, but we're not coming in with, the, oh yeah, let's sit down and do some training. Uh, we're there to see if you're in compliance, but we want you to work closely with your HAI team. They, they are the experts. Matter of fact, I spoke to the HAI program director, Argentina Charles yesterday, and we talk frequently. I mean, it's not, we just run into each other every now and then. We have frequent communication because we both feel so, we both feel so passionate about our roles working together, you know, to provide them providing that education, us making sure you're, you're following their recommendations. And again, both entities wanting to improve that quality of care along, along with you too, um, side by side with you. So thank you for your group for welcoming Dr. Shepke and, and, you know, he is, he is just so, so fabulous to, to work with. I just do so much enjoy, you know, what he has to say and listen to every word. And, and, um, and again, thank you for the, for the time and thank you for the collaboration. Thank you, um, Kim. Thank you. And I think we have um, Dr. Shepke um, here actually a little bit earlier than I was anticipating, which I love. Um, that's another thing I love early. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, if you can make Dr. Shepke a host and um, Dr. Shepke, I would love for you to come on so that you can introduce yourself to us. I know that um, you've spoken to us, to our group before, um, sort of uh, randomly when we saw that you were on, <laughs> we, we tagged you, but if you would please formally introduce yourself, we would love to um, have everybody aware well, thanks. Thanks so much. I appreciate the, the introduction. And uh, I, I want to thank Kim also. I mean, Kim, uh, Kim Smoke and I have been working together for quite some time, dating back from when we were stuck in the little closet we called the ESF-8 room in the Emergency Operations Center. So we, we got to know each other pretty well. We do, our two agencies do work very, very closely together. And uh, first, let me start by saying thank you all for what you do every single day you all take care of some of our highest risk population with COVID and you've done monumental things to help us help you protect this, this group. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about now uh, today is how we can go forward and continue to protect this, this group of folks. I, mean, I, I know we did a great job with vaccinations and, and certainly with, with the infections and, and monoclonals. And as things evolve, I just wanted to bring everybody sort of up to speed on what we're thinking. I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen and just, if that's okay with you, and you can tell me if you see that screen okay or not. Can you guys see that? We see it. Great. So I wanna go quickly go over um, what we're looking at in terms of moving from pandemic footing to endemic footing. And certainly we know what a pandemic is. And we, we've all just lived through it for the last couple of years. This is when we have a new infection occurring worldwide. 
There's no immunity, there's no vaccines, there's no therapeutics, it's, it's international. And pandemics, you move from pandemic to endemic when you've got these things. You've got widespread availability of vaccines, your population is largely immune, the infection rate and the death rates drop, and uh, you, the community's risk tolerance to you know, continuing a pandemic footing sort of goes away. So there's a little political component to it as well. And I think we're getting close to that. And that's, that's where the point of what I want to talk to a little bit about. Um, and obviously public health, we're gonna continue to be there and be partners. And we're gonna continue to put our, our uh, seniors first strategy and the, the population at risk strategy. We're gonna continue to do all that stuff, monitor diseases, monitor trends, continue to assist with vaccines and outpatient treatments, especially for underserved communities and be that, that provider of last resort. From our partnership with you though, with, with all the long-term care facilities, I just wanna go over again, and I know many of you are already familiar with this stuff, but I think it's good to just review because it is sort of a moving target, the various treatment options, who, who they work for, who, you know, what happens with resistance, with new variants, et cetera. And perhaps start getting everybody thinking in terms of how do you develop or how do you modify what we've been doing as we move into this sort of endemic role. So obviously vaccines, vaccine boosters can continue to be a thing. Uh, you should all know already that a, a booster and perhaps even a fourth, uh, a fourth shot is, is currently recommended. I would expect in time to come that at least with the messenger RNA vaccines, that we will eventually be a little bit more like the flu with like influenza where there's a new vaccine every year because the influenza virus is an RNA virus. RNA viruses tend to mutate so rapidly that last year's vaccine is no good anymore. Well, the coronavirus is also an RNA virus, just like influenza, but we've been fortunate that while yes, it does mutate, it mutates at a much slower rate than what influenza does, which is why our vaccine from a couple of years ago still offers some benefit. But as you've seen, as the virus continues to mutate away from the original strain, the efficacy of the vaccine slowly is getting less and less and as well as the immunity from the vaccine wanes over time, which is why these various boosters keep coming out. I suspect that the manufacturers, both Pfizer and Moderna, will eventually come out with a vaccine targeting a more recent version of the virus, and that will probably lead to improved efficacy again. So just keep on the lookout for that. It's certainly not something that's imminent, but that's just something I'm seeing in a longer term view of this. On the monoclonal antibodies, there are several flavors of this. And I think you all know I'm an enormous fan of monoclonal antibodies. This is something that has to be given to the patient very quickly, uh, but these are kind of like a key fitting into a door lock. They are exact for the string of the virus that you're dealing with. And if the virus changes the shape of that spike protein just a little bit, it can decrease the efficacy of our monoclonal antibodies. The two that we have in the state right now is citrovimab and bentolovimab. Both of these work for all prior variants, including Omicron. However, there's now a sub-variant sub of Omicron you've probably heard about called the BA2 subvariant of Omicron. And it does look like on cell studies, not in human beings, but on cell studies, citrovimab so may be losing some of its efficacy. However, betulovimab has continued to be efficacious, at least on the cell studies. So you I think it's likely that the FDA will remove the emergency use authorization like they've done with other monoclonals when the BA2 subvariant rises beyond a certain threshold, which we may see here in Florida in the coming weeks. So that really leaves us with one monoclonal antibody, at least in the foreseeable future, as we go forward, which is betulogamab. And that really needs to be given within the first seven days of onset of infection. But the, pack, the oral antivirals really offers us a lot of hope. Paxlovid is an antiviral that is highly efficacious. It's the, and it's also the way it works by, uh, it, it's a protease inhibitor. And you may know, have heard that term before with HIV. We use protease inhibitors for HIV and they're super effective. What, when a virus goes and copies itself, it creates a very long protein and that protein needs to be chopped up into individual proteins that have specific jobs. It's a protease that does that. If, if the protease doesn't do that, then all you have is just a glob of amino acids that's non-functional and the virus can't copy itself. So Paxlovid pr protects our cells by, by blocking the protease, which is basically a pair of scissors, 
that would cut that long protein into all its subunit parts that would make that protein active. And it's going to be resistant to mutations because that protease is super well-preserved. And the reason why it's super well-preserved is because if you imagine if you got a long protein that you have to chop at specific spots, that has, if you mutate that protein, it's gonna chop it at the wrong spot and you're gonna get useless protein. So Paxlovid is going to, my I predict from a biochemical standpoint, remain, remain efficacious despite the virus mutating. So this is what I really hope that you all have in your, those of you that have pharmacies and you've got access to this. The downside of this medicine is that it gets metabolized in the liver and affects, is affected by something called the cytochrome P450 system. I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this, but the point is many, many medications also go through that, that pathway in the liver. So Paxlovid interacts with lots of drugs and a lot of the people that would need this are on medicines that would interfere with that. So you'll need to, and your pharmacy will need to get familiar with who is uh, who you have to watch. You may have to take people off medications and maybe people that they can't get this because of the medications that they're on. Monopiravir is a, works a little bit differently and its efficacy is much, much lower. And I know that the demand has been a lot lower for that. It's literally only being considered the drug of last choice if you don't have anything else. And that's in recognition of two things. Number one, is that its efficacy is much lower. And number two is that uh, the way this works, it works by forcing the virus to mutate itself. And there's a, there's a concern there in terms of long-term safety studies is, is there a potential that could also cause our cells to mutate? And while I don't think so, uh, that, you know, that's, that's something that sometimes shows up later on, which is why this is a sort of a, a, a drug that I've seen the demand be a lot lower for, understandably, because we've got much more effective medications. And here's the next one, which is really the point of this whole call, is Evusheld. Evusheld is a very long-acting pre-exposure prevention monoclonal antibody that I'm really hoping that, that your group, that your medical directors will take and run with kind of like we did vaccines. I think that the utilization of this medication is way, way too low, and it's really the, the, the whole focus of what I want to talk to you about today. This antibody, and it's a combination of two antibodies, works on all variants, including the BA2 subvariant, which is really, really great. And it lasts in the body at least six months, perhaps as long as 12 months, and can be used for anybody in whom we think the vaccine doesn't work well either because they are taking immunosuppressant medications, which many of the, your patients are taking, whether it be prednisone or cancer med medications or, or autoimmune disease medications, et cetera, or even advanced age. I, my colleagues and I have actually done antibody studies on people getting vaccines, and we notice, and along with which is uh, agreed to by other literature, folks over the age of 80 just do not mount a very robust immune response to vaccines. Well, you could supplement the vaccine program that you're using with Evusheld for people who are at high risk. So whether they're at high risk because of their underlying illness, medications, or advanced age, this is something that we should be doing during the lull, where we are right now, before the next peak, hit all these folks, 80 and older or, or younger than that, but with, with various comorbidities that put them at high risk, give them the Evusheld so that way when this next wave comes through, which will almost certainly be the VA2 variant wave, they'll be protected and we'll be able to prevent these outbreaks in long-term care before it even starts. It's given as intramuscular shots, so it's a lot, of, a lot easier actually, it's not an intravenous infusion, but like the rest of them, you have to watch them for, uh, half, you know, for an hour afterwards. So let's talk a little about what we're doing sort of right now and the system that we've all been working on and, and Kim's team has been fantastic. And, I, and as you know, those of you taking advantage of CDR Health, we have a, it has a contract with CDR to send strike teams to long-term care facilities where there's been an outbreak. We were initially waiting for there to be a number of infections in the facility before we would activate the team. But I, would, I want to dial that back because this is such a contagious virus now. It's literally as contagious as measles, which is one of the most contagious pathogens we have on the planet and it hovers in the air. I mean, if you've got one case, I guarantee you, you're going to have other cases. So a single case, especially in congregate care settings like yours, should prompt a response 
where not only do you ask folks to go treat that initial case with either Paxlovid or Bentolobumab, one of the monoclonal antibodies, but also look at who is at risk in your facility who has not already been exposed. And while you have the experts there and you have the clinical staff there from a strike team, go ahead and get all those folks Evusheld to help prevent them from the outbreak from, from spreading. Now, it's not used as post-exposure prophylaxis, meaning if you've got a roommate or somebody that you're next door to the index case, you can't give them the Evusheld. But if you got someone on another wing or a different building, use the opportunity to go ahead and expand that Evusheld because we know it's going protect to them, protect them as the next wave comes. But this, uh, this is the system we have on the, on the slide here is how we've been doing it. The case is identified, the information is sent to ACA, ACA concept long-term care. We talk about the strike team or, or having long-term care pharmacy, et cetera. So I'm not gonna read the whole slide for you. Suffice it to say that by the time, by the time we get to the point that CDR is gonna dispatch someone, enough time has gone by that either you've taken care of yourself or it's old data and the patient's already recovered. And we're really not using this resource to, to the maximum benefit. So I'm gonna propose a different way and, uh, and I think Aka is on board with this as well, that uh, it, they're, they're certainly there to help us all the time and they're wonderful partners. But like Tim mentioned, for when, when we're talking about HAI team or strike teams, they don't actually have to be in the, sort of in the, in the middleman position on this. If you have a positive case, I would love for you to have the ability to take care of this all on your own. But if you don't, Pick up the phone and call CDR and tell them to send a team and do it, do it immediately because the more we wait, the more people will get infected, there'll be more hospitalizations, the more un unneeded suffering. And uh, you know, CDR can come immediately to you and they have, they have the step that not only can give a normal monoclonal antibody like bedpilovimab, but they can do the Evusheld as well. Now, the problem with this is, I mean, this will work great. You can start that today and there's the phone number for CDR. If you want to change, it, change your process, do it right now. But here's the, the problem. We, our state contract ends with CDR on June 30th. That means you've got basically a couple of months to develop some sort of self-sufficiency model within your own organization to do exactly what I'm talking about here. You've got a case, you need to treat that case right away, as well as make sure that you've reduced the risk to the other folks that live in that facility, either by Evershell, vaccine booster, et cetera, so whether you've got long-term care pharmacy or you've got nurses that, that can study up on, uh, on giving the intravenous infusion of the, mono, of the monoclonals or even the ion shots at Evershell, I think that's really, really gonna be important as, as, we, uh, as we move forward into more of an endemic footing where the state's gonna come back to our normal, uh, our more traditional role and then it's gonna be the, the primary, it's gonna be a private healthcare system that takes care of this, just like we take care of all other illnesses such as influenza, et cetera, we deal with on a, on a cyclical basis. I'm putting Shannon Hughes, who's in the room here with me right now. She's our project manager for COVID. Uh, that's her contact information that feel free, certainly to reach out if you got any questions, any concerns, think we can do something better to help you all out. Uh, we're happy to do everything we can, as, as you know. And with that, I'm gonna turn it back over to you. I really appreciate the time that you've given me to speak to you today. And again, I can't thank you enough. I know these last couple of years have been really, really hard and you've done enormous things really for the benefits of Floridians that, that you take care of. And thank you so much for that. Thank you. And, you know, I know um, our group is never really quiet. So do you have time for a few questions? Uh, absolutely, I'd be happy to, happy to stay for a minute. Yeah, so anyone, if you have a question, please take yourself off of mute, or if you um, prefer, you can enter the question into the chat. I will, um, once again, just thank you. I, I have a question on the um, antivirals. Um, what, you know, some of our facilities have expressed concern on how to get those in, um, um, whether it is the, the distribution, I, I guess, is from the state. And what do we need to do or how do we direct them and our long-term care pharmacies um, so that the, the medication is being distributed adequately to our facilities? Do you want to answer it? Sure. Hey, uh, hey everybody. This is Shannon. Um, I'd be happy to send you a link to the um, mailbox that is monitored daily. And 
Um, what will happen is once you send, so I'll give you that mailbox um, link, but once a person sends an email to that, they get an auto response that is full of a lot of information and a lot of links, and it's specific to what kind of product you are interested in receiving. So I'd be glad to send that to you, Diane, if you want to share it with all of your um I would, I would be so grateful. Yes. And then we can definitely distribute it to everyone who's on the call and, um, and even beyond. Um, what about it for the Evie shed? Um, I think the challenge for us is that, you know, we do have a staffing shortage. We do have, um, um, that as an issue. And my concern would be that by the time we get access to the, the product, it is already in that post-exposure um, um, period. So what do we need to do um, to the point that you made, um, Dr. Shevke, now? How do we get that into our buildings now? Yeah, and that, that's a great point. And this is the time to do it while we're in the lull because this is a preventative medication. It's, it's a monoclonal also, but it is used, think of it almost as a vaccine substitute. So for, for people in whom the vaccine doesn't work well, so people over the age of 80, people who are immunosuppressive medications, they may be vaccinated, they may even be boosted, but we know they're not gonna develop a really strong immune response. And we can give them this Edwishell, which is gonna last six to 12 months to provide them that extra protection. So if you have people that are in that group, uh, we, we are, currently we have the contract with CDR and we can send the folks with CDR out to give to your population, uh, obviously, you know, there's limits to our bandwidth. So we'll, we'll do the best we can. And, and CDR does have, we did distribute to them some of the Evershell and we do have contract with them up until June 30th. Meaning that contract, you know, we only have a period of time available. After that, it's really gonna go much more on, unless something else changes, uh, back to sort of private sector healthcare systems. So however you would normally do your vaccination programs, think of this sort of like vaccination program because it is an intramuscular shot for the Edu shell. So the skill set is very, very similar to vaccine, except you give a couple of shots and then you'd have to watch this. The period of observation is a little longer because they, they like to watch it for an hour. Did you want to say something, Shana? I was just going to say in the long-term, a lot of long-term uh, long, long care facilities in Florida, are, I'm sorry, pharmacies do already have Edu shell. So one thing you could do is check and see um, but, but in a lot of cases, like Dr. Shepke was saying earlier, um, they're sitting on the shelf. People aren't that aware of these products. So you may find that they're already accessible to you. Right. That is a great point. And, I, and we always encourage um, our clinicians in the building, please check with your long-term care pharmacy consultants to make sure you have it. I think that's a great point. And, and um, if they don't, they can order it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. This, the same way that you would order the Paxlovid, put in your request for Paxlovid. Currently, the model is uh, the feds give to the Department of Health this, the whole state's allocation. And then we get requests from whoever wants it. it, could be your group, could be pharmacies, could be doctor's offices. And then we collate those requests. And well, I'll, I'll, I say we, but I mean Shannon when I say that, collates those requests and, and distributes it in an equitable manner. So we, we certainly wanna make sure we hit target populations that are at high risk, which you guys, you know, you're at the top of the list for that. So we would, we would make priority for you all. And that, that's gonna be through that link that I'm gonna to send to you, Diane. Perfect. What is the turnaround time? So if I'm ordering something today, when will I expect it to be in my building? We, ins we um, put the orders into the federal system on Friday afternoon. And typically you would, the facility would receive it that next Tuesday. And it's a weekly allocation for most things. The Evu shell, they give us a sort of supply that we draw down for the entire month. So it, it's a little, it may be a little more efficient on Evu shell because it's a once a month thing. So when you put the request in, we can ask for it and, and they'll ship it directly from the feds to you. Yeah, that is very good to know. I'm going to ask again, if anyone has any questions, please take yourself off on mute, or um, if you so want, you can enter in, into the chat. Thank you, Dr. Zorwitz, who put in an article about Evusheld from JAMA, so thank you for sharing that. Um, anyone with any questions?
So Hi, Diane, this is Terry O'Shea with Omnicare um, related to, and I lost connectivity for a minute, so I'm sorry if this was already answered, but regarding your question about oral antivirals, there is actually a new program um, the government has initiated. Um, it's in its early weeks, but where long-term care pharmacies are able to directly order those now, not um, outside of the state allocation. So, you know, that's at least something that's coming and should make them more widely available. That's that, that, thank you, Terry. You're absolutely correct. So if you have a pharmacy and the ability to test patients on site, you can fall under the Fed's new program. And, and they're working with, the idea is they want to give Paxlovid to places that where a patient can go get tested, get a prescription, and receive the medication all at the same time, sort of like a one-stop shop. Uh, and then I would just simply say we should add monoclonal antibodies to that because not everybody can get the Paxlovid because of drug interactions. Uh, and then, of course, the protective, you know, the population prevention method of Evusheld. So you're absolutely right. You, you can get direct allocations from the feds where you don't have to worry about us giving you a piece of Florida supply. Although certainly, like I said, we would prioritize you for that. If you meet the criteria from the feds, you can get directly supplies from them as well as they move forward in that new program. Dr. Shefke, um, in thinking about as we're moving to endemic preparedness and getting stocked up on the medications we need, what, what do we need to do to um, further educate our staff um, who may, not, I guess they're, they're sort of, they're not in that population who would normally be um, getting the Evu shelled. What education do we need to do to encourage them to get boosted or get vaccinated as some of them are still not vaccinated? Yeah, you know, obviously vaccine is, uh, is one of the frontline prevention strategies. And we have to recognize that every disease we deal with, you have a prevention strategy and a treatment strategy. And I think Florida, we've really been leaders on that where uh, I think a lot of nations can focus on prevention and mitigation strategies where the treatment, which I did, I did a lot to talk about today, is the other piece, because there is no prevention strategy that we've ever had prevents disease 100%. People, even people who are vaccinated can get this disease and can transmit it to others and can get deathly ill. So for both of them, we're, we're gonna need everybody to do everything they can. We should not underestimate, number one, what we do not know about this disease in terms of long-term effects. I know we talk about deaths and hospitalizations. Perhaps we don't spend enough time talking about folks that have long COVID and these other disabilities that we're, we're still learning about. And even young, healthy people like your staff who may not be so much at risk for hospitalization death could potentially be at risk for some of these long COVID problems that we're seeing that even young, healthy people get. The vaccines do seem to prevent some of the long COVID symptoms. So I would definitely encourage folks who are eligible to get a vaccine or a booster to go ahead and get that. The idea behind the boosters is simply because the virus changes over time. So the vaccine was to the original virus. We're now on generation number four or five of this virus. So of course, they like the vaccine, you shouldn't expect to get the same efficacy level. And also over time, it's just natural for our bodies to our immunity response to wane. So of course, you're gonna need boosters, just like you get a tetanus booster, right? Over time, Things, things wane. This one just happens to be a tricky virus. So the, uh, you know, the immunity against the new variant wanes a little bit faster, which is why the boosters are so important, especially for the high risk folks. But keep in mind, if you're somebody who cannot get the vaccine, which there are some people that have legitimate problems with the vaccine, even if you're otherwise young, Evoshells is something for you. Or if you're somebody where the vaccine, it may not be contraindicated in you because of allergy or something else, you can get the vaccine, but you know it won't work well, vaccines for you, uh, every shelves for you also. It gives you that same protection relatively long amount of time. So I would definitely give both of those things, let, let people know that this is something that we're going to be living with for the foreseeable future. We'll have continued waves. And yes, natural immunity is a real thing. Uh, and vaccine immunity is a real thing. And it's, you, but when you look at those two pathways, uh, the natural immunity pathway comes with some risks that the vaccine doesn't have. The vaccine comes with some risks that the natural immunity doesn't have. But overall, I think most experts in the country agree that the vaccine-induced immunity is the safer path to travel down. So one of the messages that I tell, I, I work with a lot of firefighters, 
it's their decision how, how they want to handle this thing. Certainly it's their healthcare, but you're, we're all going to have immunity to this thing one way or the other. And I think the pathway to that is either get infected or get the vaccine. And based on the literature, I believe the vaccine is the safer the two paths. It's a, it's a decision that they need to make for themselves and discuss with their physician about. But I, I would certainly encourage them, especially healthcare work environment, where you're going to be exposed to this thing. I think, I think vaccine is a good choice. They also have to understand, if, no matter what they do, decide to choose on the prevention method, make sure they're aware of the treatment options. Because these treatments don't just help them. It decreases the number of days that they're contagious. It helps the rest of society when we treat people. So if we put them on Paxlovid right away, it drops their viral load. We put them on, on one of the monoclonals, it drops their viral load. And now they're at less risk of infecting other people. So they're, both strategies are really important. And we just need to make sure everybody has a knowledge base so they're ready to protect themselves as well as the people around them. Thank you. And I, and I thank you for bringing up um, long COVID. I think um, we, we've had a couple of talks around the state and country where we're trying to really spread the, make people aware of that, um, make people aware of um, the fact that they're, they're, we, we need to be more vigilant in, our, in, in addressing that and looking at that for our population. So I do thank you for um, bringing that up. And um, I know we had a question that came through and it, I think it's directed at, um, actually it might be directed at, at Kim Smoke uh, um, about the, the fact that given all the, the, the clinical um, recommendations and changes that were proposed um, earlier and discussed earlier with the State of the Union um, um, information, will ACA support having certified medical directors in the, in the long term uh, in our in our nursing homes <laughs> well, that's a loaded question Kim <laughs> that is a loaded question but it that if you're talking about federal legislation then then that's not really for me to answer that's not really for our agency to answer that is you know if there is language proposed to have medical directors you know have certified medical directors in nursing homes then we would all have an opportunity to comment on any federal language before it's before it's adopted. So, you know, thank you. Thank you know you. what what I do support is just like, and I think that we've had this conversation before that you know a lot of people want to know well, well who is the medical director in that in that nursing home? And you know we post from a transparency standpoint. You know my contact information is out there. So why is a medical director's contact information for that nursing home that they are contracted with not available either. Um, and, you know, just like we post nursing home administrators names, we post a chief financial officer, we post their corporate affiliation, you know, and everything about the facilities posted on, you know, our website on CMS five stores. So I do know that that has been and continues to be discussions at the federal level um, as well. Um, and I do know one of the things that CMS has recently said that at some point it's, you know, we, we may be talking, you know, years down the road, who knows, but <clears throat> that they are looking at more, you know, medical director um, requirements um, and, and how involved medical directors are in these quality issues that we're finding in our nursing homes, you know, and, and folks who were at Ferdona last week heard me mention the rise in immediate jeopardies and the, the quality of care, you know, deficiencies, the high rise in quality of care deficiencies we're seeing. So that's something to kind of, you know, prepare yourself for um, at some point is CMS, not only looking at, you know, other things from the president's message, but other things CMS regulatory wise may be working on. Thank you, thank you. I have a question for Dr. Shepke and, and Kim, th this may also roll over to you. Given that we do have um, more availability of treatments uh, now for COVID, if we see that it is not being given, um, how how do we approach that? Um, it, it is stating that maybe that's substandard care, I would imagine. But given that we we have it available, if we're seeing it not being utilized, what do we need to do um, as leaders in our facilities? As um, the clinicians and maybe um, as the medical directors in the building, what should we be doing? Diane, I'm so happy you brought that up. And, and let me apologize. I don't know what's up with the camera that it doesn't zoom in. It looks like I'm like a mile away, but uh, I see you all just fine. Um, 
I, I think you're absolutely correct. The especially for the high risk population that you're dealing with, if somebody has COVID, the standard of care really should be they get one of these treatments. Now it's hard to say standard of care when you talk about medications that have emergency use authorizations. So maybe that doesn't yet apply, but I can tell you if I have a family member in one of your facilities and they get this, I would expect that they're going to get Paxlovid if they're a candidate for that, or the Depilovimab if they're, if they're not a candidate for the Paxlovid. And because we know that these medications are scientifically proven to decrease the rate of hospitalizations and death from this disease, whether vaccinated population or unvaccinated population, doesn't really matter. The, these medications clearly reduce your risk for this disease and should be considered almost a reflex. You get sick, you give them this. And then the larger thing, thing should then enter as a secondary reflex is, okay, we got one case, who else has been exposed? Who, who do we have to start doing a little more frequent testing on? And who here needs Shell to protect them? But, you know, because it looks like we get a little outbreak in our, in our congregate care center. So you're absolutely right. We, we do unfortunately see some cases where by the time CDR, our strike teams get involved, they, nobody's been treated and everybody's either recovered or, or gone to the hospital already. And then that's really something that I'd love to see you all and the medical directors sort of do some sort of continuous quality improvement practice and perhaps a, an education program saying, all right, you had, a, you had X number of positive cases this month or whatever. How many of them received treatment? Uh, for the ones that did not receive treatment, why was that? And really the only acceptable answer is that the patient or their, their guardian slash family member decided for them to not get it for whatever reason they choose, right? Because we're, that's, it's certainly their choice, it's their body, but that should really be the only reason. It shouldn't be anything else. It shouldn't be that you didn't think of it or you didn't have a system in place to treat them. But, you know, that, those things need to be a thing of the past. You know, we have a lot of options for therapeutics and that's, they're gonna be more and more coming on board. Uh, we, we continue to, to hear about these new things in the pipeline that really look very promising. So we should all just be in the mode that we're going to continue the prevention strategies, do the boosters when indicated, but always be at the forefront of the treatment portions because we know prevention won't prevent 100% and these folks are still at risk. And as long as you do early treatment, it saves lives. Thank you. Thank you. And I, and I, I thank you again for joining us. I thank you for um, providing us with all this great information. Um, Shannon, I look forward to getting that information from you. Um, Kim, thank you for um, jumping on our call as well. And thank you for every, everyone who's here. Um, we'll definitely send out some more information to you and I want you guys to all have a great day. Thank you so much for the time. Thank I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, thank you Diane. Thank you. References for this podcast and links to the previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.